invite you to turn to Mark chapter 13. I see that there is still a morbid fear of the front row of seats in this church. We'll fix that someday. Mark chapter 13, 9 through 13. And while you are flipping through your pages, uh, stick a piece of paper, stick your finger or something in Revelation chapter 7, verses 14 to 17. We are on the fourth part of a series of uh, sermons looking at what's called the Olivet Discourse. And I believe, yeah, the uh, all eight points, all eight signs uh, that the end has come and that the return of Jesus is imminent uh, uh, are up on the board for, for your viewing pleasure. And as I said, we're on the fourth point in an eight-point series. And some of you may wonder, why, Aaron, why are we going so slowly through this passage? We, it feels like we are in first gear and we should really be in fourth, maybe fifth gear. Well, my answer to that is multifaceted. One... Eschatology is confusing for many. Uh, I imagine there are very few people who stay up late at night uh, uh, because they can't figure certain eschatological details of Scripture out. And you might be inclined to think, you know, it's so confusing. How do we really know where we can land on this? This just kind of cruise through that. But that's precisely one of the reasons why I think we shouldn't go through in fifth gear, but rather go down to first gear so that we can carefully navigate this text. And so that, that's why I want to go through it slowly. Uh, secondly, um, there are seven times in this passage, at least seven times, where Jesus is warning his disciples to be on guard, be watchful, be on the alert, look out uh, because of what is coming ahead. And so that in light of that urgent, repeated warning, that, that that might be a really good indication that we shouldn't go, yeah, 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 we, we got this. This, this may be uh, exactly the occasion to slow down and see if there's something we've missed or something else we can learn. Also, it's quite unusual for Mark, who is the man of action, writing to the Roman audience who, who like things quickly, quickly, quickly and on the go, Mark, uh, for those of you who've been with us in the study of Mark, Mark writes very quickly. He writes uh, in a much abbreviated get get to the action, get to the point kind of writing style. It is very unusual for him to devote this much time and text to one uh, sermon. And I think uh, we could clearly conclude that this the entirety of what Jesus had to say wasn't something that he said in five minutes or however long it might take us to read this chapter. So I would ask you just to bear with me as we uh, go through this. Trust me when I say I do intend to finish preaching on the return of Jesus before the return of Jesus. So bear with me. Thank you. Thank you. Just bear, bear with me, and we will suffer through this together. So as I said, uh, we're on the fourth point. We've looked at the deception of false teachers. We've looked at the devastation of wars. We've looked at the disasters of nature. Now, the fourth 
sign that the end is nigh and that the return of Jesus is just around the corner is the detestation of all people. And by this, I mean by all people. Mark writes, but be on your guard, verse 9, for they will deliver you to the courts and you will be flogged in the synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them. The gospel must first be preached to all the nations. When they arrest you and hand you over, do not worry beforehand about what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but it is the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by all Because of my name, but the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. As I alluded to earlier, verse 9 begins with a warning where Jesus says, Be on your guard. And this is the dominant application of the whole passage. This is the, the big so what. With the entirety of the Olivet Discourse, be on your guard. Don't be misled. Don't be shocked. Don't be surprised. Be alert. Be aware of what's coming ahead. The first warning uh, came in verse 5. See to it that no one misleads you. Here in verse 9, be on your guard. Verse 23, take heed. Verse 33, be on the alert and take heed. Verse 35, be on the alert. Verse 37, be on the alert. That's why I'm saying this is the big takeaway. This is the big so what with this whole passage. We should be aware of what's coming. Be on your guard. Know what's coming so that when the world falls apart, that doesn't mean that your world is falling apart. Jesus doesn't want his disciples or his church to be surprised or shocked or derailed in their faith when these things happen because that is what everybody will be feeling. This call for alertness requires the disciples to know that suffering is coming. And mark this, not so that they can avoid it. The point of telling them what is coming is so that they can steal themselves and be prepared to endure it. Think back. Jesus did not tell his disciples when he talked about wars and rumors of wars. He didn't tell them, you know, if you go to this country, if you go to this district, you'll be safe and you'll avoid the wars. And when he said that there will be earthquakes, he didn't say, well, if you go over here, you'll avoid the worst of it. Or he didn't say, you know, the famines will happen in these years, and so if, as long as you stockpile stuff up around this time, then you should be good. He gave, he, he's giving these warnings so that when it appears like the world is spiraling out of control, and it, it will look like history has gone off the rails, that his church might know for certain, that they might be affirmed and reaffirmed in their heart that God has not lost control because again it will certainly look like it and for many it will feel like it and so 
we, the first sign that he gave was that there would be uh, the coming of many false Christs with the result that many would be misled. Secondly, there would be wars and rumors of wars. Third, there would be earthquakes and famines. Well, what is, what is it now we are to be looking out for as an indication that the last days are upon us? The, the sign that Jesus gives is this. There will be great detestation by all the world against Christians. All the cultural restraints, political restraints, social restraints will be removed and the world's fury will be unleashed against those who belong to Christ, against those who speak for Christ, against those who sound like Christ and look like Christ. That's because world hates Christ, but they can't touch Christ, so they will do the next best thing, and they will harass and persecute his body. And Jesus gives three, three features, three aspects to this detestation, to, to the hate that is going to be revealed and unleashed. Three aspects to this persecution. And there's a, a particular word that Jesus uses that, I, that I'm going to use for my outline it, it, this word carries the theme of these verses. And uh, let me ask you, looking at these verses, can you tell what, what word that is? What word appears several times? There's, it's in verse 9, it's in verse 11, and it's in verse 12. Actually, depending on... Uh, if you have the NASB in verse 11, it's not going to be the same word. I'll, I'll just tell you. It's the word for being handed over, being delivered over, or as verse 9 and verse 12 use, uh, render it, it's betray. The, the, when speaking of an item, uh, of a non-personal thing, this word means to give over, to commit, uh, 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 to deliver to, like to, as, if, as, if, as if to deliver goods or to commit uh, an item for your safekeeping. But when it's used of a person, it can mean to, uh, to betray. Because the idea is, is, just as if I were to give you five bucks, is that five bucks, does the, does the will of that five bucks have any kind of play in the, in the action? Does the item that I am giving you, does it have any say in the matter? Is it an active participant or is it a passive participant in the action of being given over to you? passive so you you can see why the translators would use the word betray when it's being used of a person what the person wants the person's choices what the person what the person wills has nothing to do with it they're being given over they're being handed over regardless of what they want and that's why it's appropriately rendered betray jesus uses this word of himself uh or used this word of himself and back in 931 when he said and he's telling his disciples what is going to happen he says the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and, and they will kill him and then in, in 1033 behold we are going up to, to jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and then they will hand him over to the Gentiles. When you're handed over to something or being delivered over to something, that's not something that you signed up to do. 
So there, there are three uses of this word in this text. And those three uses are each going to provide a point for our outline. And what Jesus does is, is for each word there is bad news that comes with it, but then it will be followed up by good news. So the bad news is to warn us about what's coming, but the good news is there to encourage us. And I trust that when we see God's encouragements encouragements in these three points that we will be reminded. I pray that you will be reminded that when God's people are in the thick of it, you will know for certain and you won't doubt that God hasn't forgotten you and that the lines of communication haven't been cut and that he hasn't forgotten you or that he's powerless to do anything about your situation but rather that he knows precisely where you are and what you're going through and that he knows exactly what to do with your circumstances, no matter how painful they are, no matter how stinky they are, how, no matter how undesirable they are. And that he will not only stand with you, but he will empower you in the midst of it and use all those circumstances for good. I mean, this really is Romans 8.28 uh, fleshed out in the last times. And that's good for us to know, right? Isn't it good for us to know that when we are suffering, when we are experiencing loss, when we're devastated, when we are increasingly sorrowful and, and may be tempted to think that our world is falling apart, isn't it good to be reminded that God can use even that for good? So these three points. The, the first one will be the breadth of the detestation that is to come. The breadth, uh, as if to uh, express the, 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 the wideness, the range, the reach of the detestation in verses 9 and 10. As I said, first we get the bad news, then we get the good news. Bad news is this. In the breadth of detestation, that Christians will be persecuted by religious people, by, by the church, and by irreligious people. So Christians will be persecuted by church and state, as it were, both before religious authorities and before political authorities. We see in verse 9, after Jesus says to be on your guard, he says, for they will deliver you to the courts, and you will be flogged in the where? Synagogue. So you can see very clearly he is talking about a religious context. To the Jews, they would have understood this to be the Jewish synagogues. Uh, if Christianity is still uh, a, a semblance of a world religion in the last days, perhaps they will be Christian churches. Christian churches in Christian denominations with Christian ministers who will be overseeing your trials and examinations and floggings. The, he says they will deliver you to the courts. These are the places of law, which if you remember back when we talked about the scribes, uh, uh, the judiciary aspect within Judaism was carried out within the synagogues. You didn't have separate places of, uh, of the judicial branch. It was carried out in church, basically. And the word for courts here, it, it's, it's the word that could be translated council, and it's the same word used for the ruling council in Israel. Who remember, five points, who can remember what that was? 
What's the, what is the ruling council within Israel? Sanhedrin. This is the same word. You will be delivered to the Sanhedrins, the, the, the local ruling councils. So persecution will happen from religious people, perhaps people that you once went to church with, perhaps within a movement or denomination or a faith that you identify as. And I don't think it's entirely out of the, out of the realm of possibility to, to be persecuted by those who profess to be Christians. That could be a real possibility. This happened in the early church, not with those who profess to be Christians, but Jewish Christians were persecuted by the Jews. In Acts 4, Peter and John were arrested and they were examined by the Sanhedrin. And again in Acts 5, as the chief priests and and his associates were becoming more and more jealous of, of the apostles, they arrested them. They intended to kill them. This is the scene where Gamaliel comes in and says, hold on, hold on. You don't want to be found fighting against God. And it, Acts 5.40 says this, they, the rest of the Sanhedrin, took his advice. And after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them, not a suggestion, they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then they released them. And in Acts 8.3, we're told that Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house after house and dragging off men and women, not to take them to annual church picnics, but to take them to prison. He was committed. This is the same word. He was uh, uh, delivering them to. He was handing them over to the prison. So Jesus is saying that you, that his disciples will be persecuted by religious people. And again, it could be fellow Christians fellow Christians in churches with the authority of our denominations, perhaps with the, with the full commendation and the full support of parachurch organizations. Perhaps there will be Christian podcasts talking about you being arrested and applauding those who put you away and with the approval of many Christians on social media. I mean, just look at, look at the state of the Christian church right now. Is that out of the realm of possibility? So Christian, so we will be persecuted by religious people. We will also be persecuted by political and judicial authorities. Jesus continues in verse 9, you will stand before governors and kings. The, the persecution by religious authorities will be joined by that of political and judicial authorities. And Acts provides us so many examples of this. James Uh, The brother of John uh, was executed by Herod Agrippa in Acts 12.2. Paul stood before, and this is nowhere uh, nowhere better represented than in the life of Paul in, in the pages of the New Testament. Paul stood before numerous councils. He stood before numerous uh, authorities within the Roman Empire and uh, King Herod Agrippa II and uh, uh, governors Festus and Felix in Acts 24 and 25. And presumably, remember he at the end of Acts, who did he appeal to? And where was he heading? Rome. Excellent, Don. So presumably he stood before Caesar Nero. We know how Nero felt about Christians. Tradition says that Nero was the one who beheaded Paul and Peter. John, according to tradition, will be 
uh, subjected by, by the Romans to slave labor as an old man. They're going to try to kill him by throwing him into a vat of oil. And when that doesn't work, they're going to exile him to the island of Patmos. And you can remember when we were going through our church history in the 3rd and 4th centuries, how large numbers of Christians, primarily the pastors and deacons, but occasionally congregants were arrested and executed for what crime? Being a Christian. He says, you will be delivered, you will be examined, you will be flogged, you will be punished. Why? Jesus says, for my sake. This tells us really what the real issue is, right? It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about Christ. Christ is the real reason that Christians irritate and offend the world. Christ is the great dividing line. Christ is the stumbling block. I know some, sometimes we can rise to the occasion, but it really is Christ. He is the rock of offense. And it's those who hate Christ will hate those who belong to Christ. What does Jesus say in John fifteen eighteen? If the world hates you, they hated me first. So that's the bad news. We are going to be hated by everybody, by religious people, by people who don't want to touch religion with a 10-foot pole. But there's good news that comes with this. Look at the last phrase of verse 9. You will, all this will happen for my sake as a what? As a testimony to them. It doesn't say a testimony against them as if this is one more evidence that will be thrown onto the case that God is going to judge them with in the end. No, this is, this is saying that you're suffering so that it may be a testimony unto them, as it, which is to say that the Christian suffering is going to allow the opportunities for these authorities to hear the gospel. And the more Christians who are persecuted, the more Christians who stand before them and are examined and suffer, that's the more opportunity they have to hear the gospel. Now, this may shock people, but the truth is, is God's prerogative is not that our life is full of rainbows and sunshine. God's chief end in life is not to see that we are comfortable. It is to see his glory displayed. And he does that by having his gospel proclaimed as it is taken throughout the earth. Remember what Jesus said to the 12 at the end of Luke and the beginning of Acts? You will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. In 1 Peter 3.17, God says, Peter says that God may will it for you to suffer for doing what is right. Why? Because that is a means to get the gospel out. And that's what we see in Acts. That's what we see in church history. That God has, in fact, used the suffering of his people, and that has proven to be the most effective and the most consistent means of evangelizing the lost. And verse 10 tells us how far this will go. It tells us the extent that this will go. The gospel must first be preached to all 
the nations. Now, believers are going to spread because of persecution. That's what, that's what people are naturally inclined to do, not just be a marshmallow, but to seek safety and shelter. And they're going to take the gospel with them wherever they go. And they will give testimony to their neighbors and to their friends that they make because at the end of the day, that's what Christians do. We talk about Jesus. That's what Christians do. In Matthew 24, 12, which is Matthew's parallel to this text, Jesus put in this little bit. He said that as lawlessness increases, the love of many will grow cold. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that the AC is turned on. It means that the hope that there is going to be a better tomorrow, that the meaning of life, that the motivation to to keep on going on, and, and the belief that life really matters and that life is worth living, all of that is going to flicker and die. And beloved, that is a wonderful opportunity to share the gospel. In that day, Christians are going to stand out like a lighthouse. They are going to stand out like a bonfire in a pitch black night. You can't hide that. And they will speak about Jesus because that's what we do. And sooner or later, no matter which ghetto, no matter which town, no matter which which county or province or village or, or district or state or nation, wherever you think you can go, wherever believers think they can go to find shelter and to hide and to find refuge, inevitably, because they can't help but talk about Jesus, they're going to be brought before the authorities. And when they do, those authorities are going to hear the gospel, no matter where it is. The gospel must first be preached. Do you hear, do you hear the divine necessity? This must happen. So that's the breadth of the detestation. The bad news, you're going to be hated by everybody, the whole lot of them. The good news, God's going to use that to get the gospel out. The second feature of this detestation is its legality. Verse 11. The bad news is that it will be entirely legal to prosecute, to arrest, and to even execute Christians Jesus says in verse 11, when they arrest you and hand you over, that's the word, hand you over, deliver, betray, you will be handed over regardless of what you want to do. I notice Jesus doesn't say if they arrest you and hand you over, when they arrest you and hand you over. It's, It's not... He's not suggesting there's a possibility this might happen. There's, he's expressing the inevitability as if there's no other option. This is going to happen. And when it does, then this is what you do. In the last days, just as under the Roman Empire, I believe Christians are going to be grossly misrepresented because of two things. Either, and this is what happens today, people either flat out lie about them and slander them, or they're going to redefine terms. And you may ask, well, how does that happen? What does that look like? Uh, who hasn't been called intolerant? Who hasn't been called bigoted? Who hasn't been called hateful or phobic when they're trying to talk about Jesus? And, uh, uh, 
uh, what was that guy in um, Princess Bride? You keep using that word. I don't think it means what you think it means. We are not afraid of the people we're trying to reach. We are not, we don't hate them. We love them. We're not afraid of them. We're concerned for them. We're not intolerant. It's not our message. It's Jesus's message. And just like today, how language is, is redefined and people don't think things through anymore in the, in the last days, I think this is how it's going to happen. You Christians are going to be grossly misrepresented. They're going to be slandered and they will not be given an opportunity for reasoned dialogue and to, and to reasonably defend themselves. They're going to be vilified. They're going to be labeled as the cause for the world's problem. I mean, that is already happening right now. You're backwards. You're, you're, you're regressive. We need to move forward. You're going to be vilified. And it's going to become not only socially acceptable, it is going to become entirely legal to prosecute, to sentence, and to punish Christians. That's the bad news. It will be legal. We're not talking about just fines. We're talking about incarceration and death. That's the bad news. What's the good news? Well, you think about what the initial reaction would be. If, if, you're, if you were in those days, what would you would instinctively feel as you're arrested? And you haven't prepared, uh, you haven't studied law, you haven't prepared uh, to, to be a lawyer. What would you want? You'd want somebody to defend you, right? You'd want somebody to come to your aid. You want to know that you are not going to stand alone in this. Christians are going to worry about what what could they possibly say, what could they possibly do, and how are they going to possibly defend themselves and get out of this alive. They're going to plead for legal representation, and they're going to hope that, uh, I sincerely doubt there's going to be any lawyers who are going to be openly sympathetic to Christians. Christians are just going to hope that they get at somebody who's not as biased against them uh, as the next guy. And they're going to lose sleep as they sit in the jail cells, as they await trial. And they're going to wonder, what could I possibly say to get out of this alive? So what does Jesus say? Yeah, and this is not a suggestion. He's not saying, you know what? You really shouldn't worry. You you might think about not worrying. He tells you, he tells the believers in those days, do not worry beforehand about what you are to say. Why not? Right. Well, the Holy, what we're going to see is the Holy Spirit. You are not to worry. You are not to feel overwhelmed. You are not to feel abandoned. You are not to become desperate because... You will be provided what you need. He says, you are to say what is given you in that hour. You're to, Christians are to say what is given them in an hour. And this is the example, I think I talked last week about the, the divine passive, where it's not explicitly said who's doing the action. Some, someone is doing the giving, but in this sentence, we're not exactly told. We're, Jesus is going to say who it is. But the point is is that when Christians are called on the carpet and put before the witness stand and grilled for their faith, knowing that their neck is on the line, Jesus says, 
He doesn't want them to worry. And the gut reaction for many will be undoubtedly to feel like God has abandoned them, that God is nowhere near them, but what will the truth be? God will be very near them because he will be with them and they are not going to go this, through this ordeal alone or unequipped. He says, you will be given, you will say whatever is given you in that hour. Now, we aren't always told, uh, it's not always explicitly provided uh, who's doing the divine passive, but Jesus tells us precisely who's doing the action. For it is not you who speak, but who? The Holy Spirit. So when that happens... There will be two speakers. There will be one human speaker who is you. It'll be your muscles moving your physical lips. And your mind will be behind the words, but the Holy Spirit will be there and he will be inspiring you. He will be providing you what to say. And I don't think this means that you will be a puppet. I believe that the Holy Spirit will be bringing to remembrance what Christ has said in the scriptures. Now, there are some who aspire to be evangelists. There are some who aspire to go out and be apologists and to engage with the culture and to save souls by preaching the gospel and responding to criticism. And they may use a verse like this to justify, "Ah, I don't need to study theology. I don't need to study what they believe. I just need to go out and God is going to give me what to say. Beloved, please see that this context doesn't allow that. This context is very clear that the Holy Spirit is going to give to those who are in a setting that that these are Christians who will be on a ground that they have never walked on. This will be an arena in which they have never trod on. They will be thrust into a spotlight they did not ask for and couldn't have prepared for. And beloved, it is in that moment when the Christian needs to know that God has not abandoned him, that he will not be or she will not be left alone, but he or she will have the greatest advocate possible. He will be at your side. In fact, he will be in you and he will speak through you so that when you speak, it's not going to be your words, it's going to be his words. And the point is this, God does not abandon his people in their hour of need. And as, and as their need heightens, the Holy Spirit's ministry will increase and will match stride for stride. He's going to give you the grace in that hour, in that moment. Not before and not after, but precisely when it is needed. That is... I mean, isn't that what we're seeing as we're reading through Exodus? We see God telling Moses, I will be with you. I will uh, uh, put my word in your mouth. And we see God equipping and strengthening Moses for the task that is at hand. In Jeremiah, we see this as well. Jeremiah cries out. He's recalling, he's recalling his calling to be a prophet. He cries out to God. And this sounds a lot like Moses. Oh Lord, alas, oh Lord, I don't know how to speak because I am a youth. Kind of like Moses. I don't know how to speak. I have an elegant tongue. But the Lord said to me, 
don't say I'm a youth because you will go everywhere. Because everywhere I send you, you shall go. There, there's the suffering. And all that I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them. Those are Jeremiah's opponents. Why? For I am with you to deliver you. And then Jeremiah says uh, uh, that the Lord stretched out his hand and he touched my mouth, kind of like Isaiah 6. And God says, behold, I have put my words in your mouth. We see the same promise given to the disciples in John 14, 26, where Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit. And he says, but the helper, and that's a fantastic word, uh, 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 label that Jesus gives for the Holy Spirit, the, the comforter, the one who comes alongside and assists you and who stands with you, stands in the trenches with you. Isn't that exactly what we see in verse 11? The comforter, the, the helper, the Holy Spirit, he will, this is to the 12, he will teach you all things and what does that mean? He will bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. If you've been going through the gospel and you've wondered, these 12 are real knuckleheads. How could they get their act together at the last minute and write the scriptures? Well, they have the help of the Holy Spirit. He will bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. And then in 1526, he will testify about me, I think, to you. And then you will also testify, I think, to others. So the point is this, while the world will think they have the upper hand, the truth is the Holy Spirit is going to give Christians the greatest arsenal to achieve the greatest possible victory for the kingdom of God. What is the arsenal? It is the power and it is the presence, the immediate presence of the Holy Spirit for the purpose of saving souls in an hour where it doesn't look like anybody could be saved. That will be a dark hour. Have you ever stood in the darkness and it is so dark you almost feel like you could like you could suffocate in it? You almost feel like you could reach out and touch the darkness. That, beloved, is how dark it is going to be in those days. And the Holy Spirit will be there and he will use believers in those days. In the midst of their suffering, he will use them to save souls. That's good news. The breadth of the detestation, the legality of the detestation, and now the depth of the detestation in verses 12 and 13. The bad news, and perhaps this is an echo of the first point, the bad news is that in the extent of the coming uh, detestation, Christians will be hated by all kinds of people in the first point we looked at how it's going to be it doesn't matter if you're hiding out in the church or in government sanctioned safe spaces no matter where you are people are going to persecute you and kill you here uh it says that christians will be hated by all kinds of people and the point is is no earthly relationship no earthly alliance no earthly treaty or uh, or negotiation or safeguard is going to guarantee your safety now if you remember our church history class several months back, you'll remember that many governors, you know, once Christianity became outlawed in the Roman government, many governors could have really cared less what Christians believed or what they did or what they taught. But do you remember what the deciding factor was about 
if and when? Like, what, what, what would be the, the turning point? What would be the question that a governor would ask as to whether or not he's going to persecute Christians? Anyone remember what that was? Because most governors, most rulers really didn't have a, 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 a token to play in the matter. They, they really could have cared less. It was beneath them. All this was a matter of the people. The deciding factor was, was will persecuting Christians help me out in the eyes of the people? The, the, the people have all of these complaints against me. If I start persecuting the Christians, will that make me look better in the eyes of the people? Will it score me points with the people? And isn't that exactly what you see when Jesus is on trial? And Pilate wants to kind of give Jesus, you know, he doesn't find any fault in Jesus. And he said, I find no fault in this man. He's blameless. I'm going to let him go. And the people started getting, started rioting. No, give us Barabbas. And Pilate caved because of the pressure. That is going to be, I think, why people, why rulers in the last days will do it as well. Every politician, everyone running for office will have tally marks to show how much civil good they've done by putting Christians away. It used to be that a politician would, uh, would try to score points by kissing babies. Right now, politicians are trying to score points by doing something else to babies. I think in those days, politicians will try to score points by showing how many Christians they've executed. So in this coming trouble, Christians are going to look to those closest to them for help they're going to look they're going to go somewhere looking for shelter for refuge for respite for aid and who do you, where do you think they're going to go who would they naturally be inclined to trust the most family man you are on point today sim they will naturally maybe you're just following along in the text and you can see where I'm going with this they are naturally going to tr- look to their family because that's who we naturally trust the most But Jesus says here that even one's family will hand them over, will betray them over to death. Now, I want you to notice the progression in verse 12 and 13. Verse 12 begins with brother will betray brother. And you have to provide, uh, you could provide the words unbelieving brother will betray believing brother to death. This is, these are those who are your equals, your peers. These are those that you grew up alongside in the trenches of life. They, your brothers, your sisters, your equals, your siblings, are going to hand you over and turn you in because you're Christian. And again, this isn't being turned in for fines, not being turned in for reparative therapy or re-education. What does Jesus say? Brother will betray brother to death. And then it gets, and then it escalates. And a father, and you can, you could provide, will betray his child. Unbelieving father will betray his child. Now, that, 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 that takes it up a notch, doesn't it? It's more scandalous. It's more shocking that a father who has had a part to play in bringing this child into the world, he is now going to have a direct and personally involved part to play in taking him out. Why? 
because his child no longer identifies by his first birth, but his second birth. And then even more unbelievable, even I mean, even more amazing and scandalous is that even little innocent children. I mean, in society, who is more innocent? Who do we who do we imagine to be more innocent than children? Nobody. They're the, they're the paragons of innocence. Even they will be so indoctrinated. Even they will be so t- uh, influenced and led and captivated by the anti-Christian culture of the world that they will report their own parents and turn them in to the authorities to be put to death. And Jesus, look, look at look at the escalation uh, in verse uh, at the end, uh, or with children. They're not just going to betray. They're going to rise up. That, that, that is a passionate word. That's the word of, of, of a revolt. That's the word of, of a passionate rebellion. You know, that, that's not something. You don't rise up with like, you know, I, what am I going to do today? Ah, I think I'm going to rise up against so-and-so. This is something you put all of your heart into. This is something you put 100% into. You put your whole self into rising up to do whatever it is you're going to do. And that's reporting their parents, turning them over to the authorities so that they can be put to death. Those of you familiar with history will know that in the 1930s and in, into the early 40s, uh, Nazi Germany had uh, what was called the Hitler Youth. And many kids, many young people, young, young people were so indoctrinated that they would turn in their parents for even the slightest um, sentiment, anti-Nazi sentiment, the slightest. Now, could you imagine with, with, with technology as it is today, and if technology continues to progress, can you imagine a day where you don't have to secretly, you don't have to sneak out of bed at night and go down to the, uh, to the SS office and try to convince the guy that your dad said this, your mom did that. Children could simply use their iPhones. They could simply take a recording of mom and dad reading their Bible in their bedroom behind closed doors. They could snap a photo of, of uh, or they could record them quoting a, perhaps quoting a Bible verse as, as mom is preparing dinner or re- taking a video of them uh, reading their Bible in their bedroom. It, it, there could be even apps. And there could be, uh, CNET could have reviews about which app is the most innovative, which app is the most user-friendly, which app is, is the most efficient way to do this. Children could just upload a photo or a recording, and it would automatically go to a database. And then uh, that, would, that would be all the evidence that is needed to convict them. And your parents' faces would immediately be uploaded to databases. And, and as soon as you step out of your house, uh, you'd, be, you'd be tracked by facial recognition, re- recognition, and the authorities would know where you are, and they would come and take you to prison. It, it could be that easy. And it could be that simple, and it will be that effective. Jesus closes this out, closes out the bad news with, with a summary statement. I, th- I think this encapsulates encapsulate it. You will be hated by some, by most, by all.
because of my name. All people, all ages, all demographics, all cultures, all ethnicities, all genders, yes, all two of them, or however many hundreds and thousands are, there will be in a couple centuries. All social groups, every kind of people out there will have cause to hate you. Not, not just cause, but because of Christ. It's not about us. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's not about our quirks. It's not about our soapboxes. It's about Christ. That's the bad news. The good news is this wonderful promise. The last half of verse 13. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. Now, this verse could be misapplied in a couple ways. I don't take the end to, to mean the end of the age. That, that is the context that the end means when he uses it earlier, back in verse, uh, verse 7. It can't be the end of the age because verse 12 plainly tells us that there are going to be many Christians who are going to lose their lives in this period. So I, I take it to mean the end is, is to mean the end of one's life. And so this promise isn't given on the condition that kind of like Hunger Games style that you have to survive until the end of the tribul- tribulation. You have to dodge and evade and, 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 and get away from the authorities and, and save your life in order to be saved. I think Jesus' words mean that the true believer who has counted the cost of following Jesus and he knows what it means to deny himself, he knows what it means to take up his cross, he will persevere. He will pay the price of his life. That is a man who will be a faithful witness. That is a woman who will be a faithful witness until the end of his life. And God will save him or her. And what do I mean by save? I mean by bringing them into his presence where they won't suffer any more. You can see this sense, and that really is the full package. That is the, that is the finality of our salvation, right? We talk about being saved now, or I was saved, but isn't there a salvation that we are looking forward to? I think this is, uh, what, this is the salvation that Jesus is talking about when he will be saved. John MacArthur says this salvation in this context stretches beyond the moment of conversion to the completion of god's saving work in the life of the believer as he delivers them from the present evil system and ushers them into his eternal kingdom and you can see that in paul's heart in his last words in 2 Timothy 4.18, when he is anticipating his death, and he says this, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed. He is saying this fully anticipating his head is about to be, um, shall experience a, a draft in between his neck. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom to him be the glory forever and ever amen so i i think the context is very clear they're not being saved from death they're not being saved from or or being rescued from their fate at the hands of the the authorities I, i believe they're being saved in the fuller picture of what salvation encompasses 
I, would, I want to remind you what Paul said in Philippians 1.6. He who began a good work in you will what? Perfect it. That's the root. That is the root of the invisible work of God. This endurance is the fruit we can see in the life of the believer. He will persevere. He will endure. So he who endures will be saved. There's three so what's that I want to give you right now. Again, the, 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 the biggest so what is be on your guard and know what's coming ahead. But from this particular text, I want to say this. And I think this is very evident because of this text and because of the previous one we looked at. I think it is very evident this world is not your home. Anybody not seeing that? When Jesus says there will be wars, there will be earthquakes, there will be famines, there will be devastation on the earth, anybody who is looking to this life, anybody who is, who is living life for this life is going to be utterly and irrevocably devastated as everything that they have saved up for themselves will be shattered, destroyed, eaten up, burned up, gone. That goes for the same things. Uh, the same goes for the relationships we will have in the last days. The believer lives for a world and awaits for a city, as, he, as the writer of Hebrews says, he waits for a city that cannot be shaken. All of our relationships here and now, earthly relationships, are subject to to fail us. Why? Because this world and ultimately the families we have by blood are not our true family. This world is not your home. Secondly, being a Christian means suffering. And let me just give you, let me just lay this one on you. If your view of Christianity doesn't allow for suffering, you have an inadequate view of Christianity. If, you, if your view of faith and what it means to follow Christ doesn't allow for you to suffer, if God can't be a good God when he allows you to suffer, you don't have a right view of God. Third, I think this is abundantly clear in this text, God will not abandon his people. He will not abandon you as you're brought before those who are going to persecute you and, and flog you and condemn you and arrest you and execute you, possibly even in the name of God. God won't abandon you in that hour. He won't abandon you as you've been, as you've been brought before kings or governors or presidents or whoever. He won't abandon you as you've been arrested, and he won't abandon you as you're on your way to the executioner's chamber or the gas chamber, or, what, or the firing squad. God does not abandon his people. And maybe you've wondered, hey, Aaron, I thought you were going to Revelation for, to, to fill in a lot of the gaps here. Well, let's that, close with that. Revelation 7, 14 to 17, we see God 
not abandoning his people who have lost their lives in these last days. Look at the second sentence. These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. And they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason, they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. They will hunger no more, nor thirst any more, nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. For the lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of the water of life, and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Isn't that beautiful? Let's pray. Lord, we're reading about days that are coming where heaven and earth will be shaken. And many will, will feel as if you are nowhere around or, or if you are, that you are angry with them. And just as you will use those circumstances in, in those days, Lord, I pray that you would use the turmoils and the struggles and the hardships and the sufferings of our life right now to remind us that you are that you are near and that you are working in us and through us and near us despite and rather in and through our sufferings. Lord, if there's anybody here who is uh, whose life is too cluttered by pleasures, if if anyone's life is too busy for them to see your sovereign hand at work, if anyone's too, life is too cluttered and they are too distracted to see you, take those things away. Demonstrate clearly and powerfully that you are near and that you are here to save. Amen.